share just a little bit about the rites and rituals of the church uh, before we get uh, uh, introduce our speaker for the night who will uh, share the sermon with us. Um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Someone asked me a question. Uh, they asked me, um, Abuna, um, is there uh, going to be a lot of incense in this service? This person was interested in whether there was going to be incense. And the answer is no. Um, uh, for anyone who's been with us for the last couple of days, we haven't used any incense since Sunday morning, uh, Sunday evening, and yesterday morning, and yesterday evening, and this morning, incense. And why? Well, um, not so, not like so fussed about the incense, uh, but um, incense in the church, the use of incense in the church um, is an offering. It's a sacrifice. It's a form of sacrifice where we take something. What's a sacrifice? It's where we take something, some created matter. We believe God to be the creator. So something which he created, we take it and we give it back to him. That's how we understand our liturgical sacrifices. And that's actually how we understand the entire created world that God has given us. He has given us the whole entire created world in a larger sense that we would lead it into worship, that we would lead all of creation into worship. Rather, humanity has, you know, chosen to exploit the created world for our selfish purposes. Instead of using the created world for the worship of God, we've decided to use the created, the created world for the worship of me. But that's a topic for another day, something a little bit more ecological. But today, we're talking about why are there no sacrifices? Well, because we're walking step by step, like we've been saying for a couple of days with Jesus, and each day of his, the last week of his ministry. And as Jesus was getting closer and closer to the cross and to his resurrection, getting closer and closer to Friday, he's, he's preparing us to accept, to understand that he is the penultimate and final sacrifice. Not to be too repetitive, but this morning... Um, you'll notice that something changed in the hymn, Thine is the power and the glory and the blessing. If you were with us this morning, or if you're following, you know, if you're tuned in uh, on our live stream, or if you happen to be able to attend somewhere else, you'll notice that we sing this hymn very repetitively, Thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty forever and ever, amen, Emmanuel of God. And then in the second verse, we say, O my Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden now, we've added my good Savior. What's up with that? At the 11th hour, the last uh, section of this morning's service, we added those, uh, those three words, my good Savior. Why? Well, explain this this morning, but we'll explain it again now, and we'll say, and I'll tell you what it has to do with the, the bit about incense. It'll all come together in a minute, trust me, right? Jesus, for the first time, this morning, says to his disciples, not only that he will die and that he will be brutally tortured and rejected and spat upon and stripped naked and 
but that he will be crucified. It's the first time that he announces the method of his death. Now, why is that so significant? Because he's telling us, he's telling us how he's going to save us, right? Through his death and resurrection. The whole life of Christ, but, you know, culminates in his death and resurrection, of course, right? And Jesus says to us, he says to his disciples that he's going to be crucified. And he says this at the end of Matthew 25. We read the, 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 the last two-thirds of Matthew 25. We read them at the end this morning. And then we read the first part of Matthew 25 today. And we've read lots of readings about the end times today. And we've read lots of readings where Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the, the scribes, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, woe to you, right? And we see that Jesus today is a very sharp judge. And we find all the prophecies are talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, where he will come and he will judge, right? And that gospel that was at the 11th hour when Jesus, at the very end of it, says he'll be crucified, is also the gospel where he says, and in that day the Son of Man will come and will sit on his throne and will separate the sheep from the goats, and so on, right? So he will judge. And what, how what will he judge? And by what standard will he judge? Like, we're all judged by the law of the land, you know? Example I gave this morning was, you know, there are speed limit signs posted, and if you drive faster than the speed limit, the police can pull you over and they can give you a ticket. Why? Because there's a standard. Everybody's expected to follow a standard, right? Who sets the standard? The governing body. And when a judge sits to judge, they sit like on an elevated thing like the judge's bench. And in older ancient times, the ruler would sit on a throne and they would judge. Jesus says he'll be crucified in the psalm that preceded that gospel. We, we sing it in the royal tune, the tune to which the pharaohs, when they're entering their, their court, to, would be enthroned. When they're entering the court to be enthroned, they, they, would, they would enter to this tune, right? And since our, our spiritual heritage comes from, from Egypt, right? And so uh, Christ, as he announces the cross... He's announcing to us that he will be enthroned. This is his throne. This is his throne. And because this is his standard by which he judges, you'll notice that he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Well, that's not new. Doesn't the Old Testament say love your neighbor as yourself? But he adds something. He says, love one another as I have loved. He set the bar for us. He set the speed limit. By this they'll know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He set the bar. This love is what we're called to. This love is the dividing line. This love with which he has loved us. This 
is how we will, he will judge the world. When we Orthodox hear the word judgment day, end times, he will sit on his throne, the picture we have in our mind is Christ on the cross on the backdrop of my life. Did you get that? Set, center picture, Christ on the cross. Backdrop, my life. How does it match up? How does it match up? And I'm left to judge. This is the ultimate sacrifice. So the church is telling you and telling me there's no other sacraments other than repentance and confession for these days from Sunday morning or Sunday after the, you know, the Hosanna Sunday, Palm Sunday service and the general funeral. From that time until Covenant Thursday, there's no sacrifice because there's no sacraments. There's no sacrifice. The only, our, all of our attention is being prepared to embrace this moment. That's, that's what today, Holy Tuesday, we call each one of these days holy. Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday, and so on. That's what Holy Tuesday is all about. The judge will come to judge. But that judgment itself is full of grace. It's full of love. It's full of, a, it's, it, is a, it is freely given, right? The issue isn't the judge. The issue is me. The issue is my life. It's how does it match up. So if we wish to participate in sacraments during this period of time, there is one sacrament the church has left open for us all to participate in, the sacrament of repentance and confession and healing. To ask ourselves today, to ask ourselves now, before I do see that image, in all of its glory of Christ and his greatest gift of all, his love, portrayed on the backdrop of my life, and I am forced to judge myself. That's it for the, the uh, rituals of, of the church. Um, I'll invite now um, Jack, Allah, dear friend and brother, uh, to uh, share with us a continuation of our series, Lost and Found, during this, uh, this whole week. Thanks for joining us, Jack. I'll try not to take up uh, too much of your time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. On the way here, and on uh, several occasions, I was driving, and I saw clocks, both analog clocks and digital clocks on tops of funeral homes and they are really really large have you ever noticed this have you ever driven by funeral homes and you notice that funeral homes have the biggest clocks in the city almost bigger than a church tower and I walk and I drive and I'm wondering sometimes in the middle of winter why are the clocks so big in front of a funeral home I know you're all looking at me like I know the answer I honestly don't I'm asking you if you know why clocks are so big in front of funeral homes. I don't know the answer, but what does death have to do with a funeral clock? 
to me, and, I'm, and maybe there's a reason, maybe you engineers might tell me why the clocks are so large on the tops of funeral homes, but for me, as simple as I am looking at it, is this telling me like the seconds are ticking and I look and there's a funeral home, am I being reminded of my mortality? Am I being reminded that my life is very short? Even if I live to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years, as St. James says, it's like the blink of an eye. It's, it's like the grass that's here today and tomorrow is gone. So I'm reminded, you know what, as busy as I'm, I am in life, as much pleasure as I want in life, as many faults as I may have, and as, as unbecoming as I may be, there's a clock ticking for me. And most of the readings today are reminding us of that as well. Most of the readings today are reminding us that our time is short, so I need to be ready. I need to be ready for something. So we have to be prepared. And this is summing up all the readings of today. Jesus is saying to us, watch, be ready. And that was the parable that, read in one, that we read in one of the hours today about the five wise and the five foolish virgins. The five wise bridesmaids and the five foolish bridesmaids, the foolish bridesmaids weren't ready. The bridegroom came, the end of the world came or the end of your life came, and, you, and I was not ready. I didn't have my oil full. I wasn't prepared. So I was shut out of the kingdom, God forbid. And this was the message of today is be ready. Be like the five wise bridesmaids who are ready to serve and enter into the joy of the groom, our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think is the most important thing to do to prepare for the coming age? To prepare for our ultimate spiritual destiny. What do you think is most important? Is it wisdom? Is it gaining wisdom? Wisdom is important. Growing in the knowledge of God is important. But it's not the most important thing. Is it the works that we do in the services? These are very important. The Bible says, show me your faith by your works. So yes, works are important. But is that, what's the most important thing to prepare? What do you think? The most important preparation is simply our repentance. St. John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ preached repentance. Repentance is what's necessary. His Reverence Father John asked me to contemplate on a little bit here on the prodigal son. I'm not sure if you all read this yesterday or not, the parable of the prodigal son, but the prodigal son is a story found in the gospel according to St. Luke chapter 15, where a son had a brother and had a father, and he grew up and said, Lord, Father, I want my inheritance now. Give it to me now. I'm all grown up. I can decide for myself what's right and wrong. I want to live a certain way. So he tells his father, give me my repentance. He takes his repentance. He goes and he spends it on prodigal living. Spends it in sin. Spends it frugally. Spends it on his own pleasures. Not caring for his character or his family and really having his love wane. The parable is an important depiction of repentance because it shows us what's involved in repentance. After he spent all these things, after he spent money on you know, worldly pleasures, he all of a sudden decides, I've wasted my life, I've wasted my money, I've wasted my inheritance, and all of a sudden he realizes, my life at home with my father was much better than the life I'm spending here now. His life became so bad that 
he became hungry that he would then feed the pigs. Someone hired him to feed the pigs when he wasted his inheritance. And he wanted to become like the pigs to eat what's there. And of course, if you know Jewish laws, pigs are unclean animals. And to want to become like the pigs and eat their food is the lowest thing you can become in life for a Jewish person. And to the Jews who were told the story, they understood what that meant. And for us, sin, living in sin, living away from God, eventually is like living a life that is depraved, away from God, even when we don't realize it. But the Bible says in verse 17 of the Gospel of Luke that he came to his senses. So the first point about being lost and being found is having some wisdom, being able to tell, it's better in my father's house. It's better than this life that I'm living now. I want to be found. So the Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and, before your, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and started to go to his father. Now, uh, a professor of New Testament theology, um, Dr. Ken Bailey, he contemplates on his desire to go back. Some people say, well, th there's his repentance right there. So far, Dr. Ken says that he's not repenting. He's just... He had an illumination. He says, you know what? It's better in my father's house. Why? Well, I don't have to live with the pigs here. And I don't have to worry about starving here. If I simply go back to my dad's house, I will be able to eat. So Dr. Ken says, Dr. Ken Bailey says, I have to simply look out for myself. I'm looking out for myself here. And when he says, I'm going to go and tell my dad, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Dr. Ken's contemplation on this is, I'm going to appease my dad. I'm going to say something to him to butter him up. But he's not really repenting. He's going to butter up his dad, make him feel good, get back on his good graces, and then figure out a way to make things better. Dr. Ken contemplates on Pharaoh in the Old Testament. When, when Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh would not let the people go, God brought the promised plagues on the Egyptians. After a while, Moses said, uh, sorry, Pharaoh said, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He didn't really repent. He was just saying this. He's saying here the, the parable of the prodigal son, he's saying it in the same way. He's not really repenting. He's just figuring, I'm going to butter up my dad. Then he thinks, then he goes to his dad and he thinks, if I tell him I'm going to make me as one of your hired servants, I'm going to sell myself as a servant or a slave and try and pay you back. I'm going to write you a check for taking my inheritance and wasting it, and somehow trying to repay you back for the dishonor I've caused you and your family, if I do that, maybe I can pay you back. So far, he's not repenting. He's figuring out, look, I'm trying to find a way here. I'm very shrewd. I'm very smart. I'm very wise. I know it's better in heaven. I know it's better in the church. I know it's better with God. I know it's better in my father's house. How can I pay him back? So far, he's not repenting. But then he goes to his father, intending to say these things, but, if, but Dr. Ken Bailey noticed that he's, he doesn't say what he intended to say. He intended to say, I have sinned against heaven in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me as one of your hired servants. As he's coming, he sees his father coming and he sees his father, before he, he even says anything, he sees his father coming and running to him, not judging him, not 
pointing the finger at him, but willing to accept him with open arms, falling on his neck, happy that his son is coming back. This represents God, of course. And the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops there. He does not continue, according to Dr. Bailey, and in the Bible, in the Gospel according to St. Luke, he does not continue what he intended to say. He doesn't say, so make me as one of your hired servants. He realizes at this point that there's no, because of my father's, look at my father coming, running towards me, ready to accept me, ready to take me back. There's nothing I can do. Even if I sell myself as a slave all my life, there's nothing now that I can do. And I realize this now, according to Dr. Ken Bailey, there's nothing that I can do now to pay back my father, even if I sell myself as a servant or a slave, and whatever money I earn, I used to pay back my inheritance, I can't, it's not going to repay my father's honor. There's nothing that I can do about it. But look at my father who's so graceful, who loves me so much, he's willing to accept me. He's willing to accept me back. Now, now he's not buttering up his dad. Now he means it. I really have sinned. I'm really sorry. I am truly repentant for the dishonor I've caused you and the way that I've behaved. I, I now really have a change of attitude. This is Dr. Ken Bailey's contemplation of uh, this parable. Thank you, Father John, for sending me this contemplation. The church does use these words, though, in the Vespers prayer, when the church says, make me as one of your hard servants, we mean, Lord, we're willing to do whatever it takes. We're willing to imitate the Son both in His wisdom and His actual repentance. So we use this in the Agbeya prayers to say to God, Lord, I want to repent. I am willing to do whatever I can do, but I know there's nothing I can pay back. It's the cross that's going to pay the debt for me. The reason that the son wanted, was thinking about, how am I going to pay back my dad? It was because he was afraid. He had some fear. This is the same kind of fear that Jacob in the Old Testament had when he went. You know how, J you all know the story of Jacob, right? He dressed up as his brother, as his father was dying. And he went and he said, I'm Esau, right? And he looked like Esau and he smelled like Esau. And he went and he stole his father's blessing. His father blessed him as though he were Esau and he stole the blessing. And of course, it's because Esau had sold his birthright that Jacob was, allowed, was able to do this. When Jacob took the blessing and God had blessed him, he was afraid of his brother Esau. So he brought many gifts and a lot of cattle and went to meet his brother Esau and all his family and, and his little army that he had. He said, oh, if I bring a lot of gifts, maybe Esau won't kill me for stealing his blessing. This is the kind of fear that Jacob had of his brother Esau. The prodigal son, according to Dr. Ken, had the same fear. It was a slavish kind of fear. The fear of, what am I going to do to appease my dad? He's going to judge me. He's going to tell me I deserve what has happened to me. He might not accept me and he might throw me out. So this is a slavish kind of fear. And I want to contemplate with you today about the fear of the Lord. What is it that prevents us from going back to God? Or what is it that prevents us from leaving God in a certain way? Or at certain times? One thing that will motivate us is the fear of God. There's three kinds of fear. St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo, he taught us that there's something called a slavish fear, which is the fear of punishment. A criminal is afraid of the police. You break the law, you're going to get punished. It's the fear of punishment. This is called slavish fear. God, if I don't repent, I'm going to go to hell. That's the slavish fear. St. Augustine calls this an immature kind of fear, but it's, it's a valid fear. St. Augustine says there's a more mature kind of fear called filial fear or fear out of love, fear of a son out of love to his father. This is the fear of, Father, I love you and I don't want to hurt you. My wife, I don't want to do anything to disappoint you. My best friend, I don't want to say or do anything that 
may be offensive to you or may make you feel like you're betrayed. This is, St. Augustine says, this is a filial kind of fear. It is a more mature. He calls it a holy fear. And this is the fear that we want as well in relation to God. Lord, I love you. It's the same kind of fear that Joseph had when Futifar's wife came to him and wanted to commit adultery with him and she tempted him in the Old Testament. Joseph said, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? And we know that Joseph was holy. He was motivated to be holy. And of course, you know what holiness means, right? Holy means separated from God, separated to God, dedicated to God. He literally did what is holy. He literally was presented with a situation, was in an environment where he was going to do something unholy. He literally ran away. He literally stepped away and walked away from the adulterous situation. He looked away, turned his eyes and his body away. When you separate yourself from sin, when you purposely look in the other direction, instead of continuing to look at something sinful or lustful or envious or something that's going to cause you to sin, that makes you holy. You're holy when you simply do this. The simple turn of an eye in God's eyes, you're like Joseph. You're holy. One of the... A character in the church once said, he who strives for holiness is just as good as a, as a martyr who refuses to bow down to idols. When you turn your eye or turn away from sin or remove yourself from a, from, a, from a situation of sin, you are becoming holy. You're conducting a holy act. The church says, this act is just as good as someone who refuses to bow down to an idol. This is a holy fear. Joseph had this holy fear. Not, oh no, if I do this, my master Potiphar is going to punish me if I get caught or if you falsely accuse me. Or if I do this, God's going to punish me and send me to hell. No, no. How can I do this thing again and sin against God? Because he loved God. He was loyal to him. This is the holy fear that we want. We want to relate to God as Lord. You died for me on the cross. I belong to you. I don't want anything that takes me away from you. I love you. And this is the holiness and the fear of the Lord that I want. The prodigal son at first had a, a fear of punishment. How can I appease my dad? He might reject me. He might, I have to butter him up somehow. But then as he came close to his father, he realized how gracious his father is. All of a sudden, his fear would turn into a holy fear, a filial fear. Have you ever seen a picture? I've seen a, this, a really funny picture. There's a grandmother with a little kid who was misbehaving. And the mother had a, this grandmother had a belt in her hand. And she had a, like, a really austere face. And she was beating. She was trying to beat the son. And the, eye, and, and, and the little picture said, um, I'll show you the fear of God. And she was going to whoop him, right? Most of us, when we, when we think of the fear of God, you know, I'll teach you the fear of God. I'm going to put the fear of God in you. That expression means I'm going to beat you or I'm going to give you a hard time, Right? And unfortunately, when we hear the word fear of God, sometimes that's what we think. You know, that God is standing up there with red eyes and a flaming mouth and He's going to punish you. You better fear Him. That is not the idea of God given to us in the Bible. So we have the, the slavish fear and the filial fear, filial fear. But I want to show you something in the Bible that motivates us to return to God that is really amazing. But before I go on to that, I, I don't want to demean the fear of punishment because the fear of punishment as immature as it is it's important because if if we don't ha yet have the perfect love of God one of the saints it was St. Anthony he said I no longer fear God because I love him and some people say well I'm going to use that and apply it to my life but be careful the Bible says the gospel of St. John says perfect love 
casts out fear. Not just, not just love. Perfect love casts out fear. And as, so the more you have that perfect love, the holy or the filial fear of God increases, and the slavish fear of God, the fear of punishment, decreases. Now be careful, because I know I don't have the perfect love of God in every situation. And if I don't, then I still need some of that slavish fear. So I don't want to be haughty and conceited and say, Oh no, I love God. I'm not, what Saint Ant- I'm not at the spiritual level of St. Anthony. Right? I still have that need, a little bit of that slavish fear. Because when I sin, it means that there's a problem in certain areas of my life where I don't yet love God perfectly. So maybe I should hang on a little bit, a little bit to that slavish fear, even though I'm growing and growing in the love of God. Perfect love casts out fear. Until your love is perfect, it's okay to have a little bit of slavish fear, especially at the beginning. And then grow into the filial, holy fear of God, the fear out of love. Because if you're not yet perfect in the holy fear of God that St. Augustine talks about, and I don't even have the slavish fear, the fear of punishment, you know what I have left? What's left? There's an unacceptable fear that's left. It's called cowardice. And the book of Revelation says, cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we're not talking about cowardice in terms of, you know, I see a beast or a lion and I have the natural instinct to run away. That's not what he's talking about. He means here that you're afraid of losing your reputation in front of others. You're afraid of losing your pleasures of life, the pleasures of sin, the pleasures of the world, what others think about you. Now, now, now if I don't have the perfect love of God, and because of this I sin, I can still rely on the slavish fear. And I can return to God even through that. But if, I don't, if I'm so proud and conceited and think that I don't, I don't have to fear God, God is so loving and kind and holy, so I know He loves me and I love Him back, but you know what, I don't have to worry about hell at all or losing my salvation at all, so I continue to sin, then I'm, then I'm a coward. And that kind of fear is unacceptable to God and unprofitable. And God does not want us to have spiritual cowardice. So if you don't have the perfect love of God, then it's okay. You'll, you'll grow into it with God's help and God's grace. Then maintain the immature, slavish fear of God. Because if you lose that too, and you don't have any of the love of God, the, the holy fear of God or the slavish love of God, then you're left with cowardice. Now you fear the world. You, feel the, you fear the devil. You fear loneliness. You fear death. And this is unacceptable for a Christian. This is not who we are. Because Christ conquered death for us. He overcame the world, and in Him, we are called to be more than conquerors. St. Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There's no place for fear in a Christian's life, that kind of fear, that kind of cowardice fear, where we then have to obey the world and obey sin and obey our, uh, become slaves to our uh, desires and our selfishness and our fallen nature. This kind of cowardice is unacceptable. So what is the fear of God that God is talking about? In the Bible... From a biblical perspective, there's a fear of God that is called simply awe. A-W-E. Awe. The word awe is where we get the root word. It's the root word for awesome. Awesome. Our God is described in the Bible over 40 times with that very word, awesome. Look at some of these descriptions of the fear of God. In Proverbs, from the very first chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 11 says, The fear of the Lord is honor and glory and gladness and the crown of joy. Where is that old grandmother beating up the kid with the, with the belt? It's not there. Shall del- the fear of the Lord shall delight the heart and shall give joy and gladness. 
The fear of the Lord is like a paradise of blessing. You never think of fear of the Lord and paradise put together. But here the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is like a paradise of blessing. And they have covered it above all glory. So it's been said that the fear of the Lord is awe. You know, my son, I have a 10-year-old boy. His name is Antonius. And just last May, I went and I bought a new car. Bought a Chevrolet Cruze, which, by the way, they're not making anymore. So it looks like it's going to become a collector's item soon. But when I was buying the Cruze, because it's all I can afford at this time, I got a nice brand new Cruze, thank God. Having food and clothing, as the Bible says, and a Chevrolet Cruze, with these we shall be content. But my son... When we went to go to Chevrolet, guess what he saw? What does Chevrolet sell that's really nice and sporty, right? What do you, know? what, what, you guys know what kind of cars they sell that's really sporty? What is Chevrolet famous for? Corvette. He saw a Corvette. A nice blue Corvette that was by Fluke, the same color as the Cruze. And he, he, he might have looked and said, Daddy, is that the blue car you're going to get? Right? So and the Cruze was, uh, sorry, the, the Chevrolet Corvette was at the front there in front of the windows. He didn't actually say that, but he was thinking that. He says, Daddy, can I touch it? Go ahead, it's on my so he goes and he touches the car, puts his fingerprints on it, and he looks into the window of the car. He's only 10 years old. I don't know how he developed his hate for expensive cars. He's talking to me about Teslas now. Uh, these kids, I don't know what they're talking about. When I was a kid, I was talking about Nintendo. He's talking about Teslas with his friend. You know, he knows more about the specs of a Tesla than I know about, you know, anything else. Like, I don't understand how he knows this. Anyway, he said, and we're buying a new home eventually. We're moving. He says, Daddy, is the, te- is the new home going to have a charger for the Tesla? Like, what Tesla? You, you have to grow up and, you know, you got to grow up and, you know, be an engineer and afford your own Tesla. I can't afford a Tesla. It's like, you know, expensive. Anyway, just like that. That's So he wants to touch the Corvette because it's, it's magnificent. He likes Lambos too. What's a Lambo? It's a Lamborghini, Daddy. Lambo, okay, Lambo's like, I got it. He, so he's into cars and he's only 10 years old. But he, 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 for him, it's awesome. And, thank you. and when something's awesome for a kid or for you or for me, you want to come close to it. You've never seen something awesome and say, ugh, stay away. No. When something is awesome, you want to come close. You want to touch. You want to be part of it. How can I get some of this? How can I put my hand on it? How can I get a blessing from it? This is awesome. Right? The Bible, over 40 times, describes the fear of the Lord and describes God Himself as awesome. I'm going to read just a few verses here to show you what I mean. Look, took Daniel a prophet. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Zephaniah says, the Lord will be awesome to them. The Lord will be awesome to them, for He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship Him. Psalm 111.9 says, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Deuteronomy 7.21 says, You shall not be terrified of them, your enemies. You shall not be terrified of those storms of life, of the devil, his demons, and sin. He says, you shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. When you know that God is awesome, you will be motivated not to leave Him, and if you have left Him, you'll be motivated to return to Him. When you recognize how awesome He is, and that this great and awesome God not only is 
terrible, terrible in the sense of being magnificent and awe-inspiring, but also humbled himself, that awesomeness. Imagine I told my son, you like the Corvette? Done, it's yours, money's no object, right? $80,000 Corvette, you got it, no problem, right? Imagine I spoiled him that way. You know, it's nothing. God came down from heaven and said, you can have it. You can have eternal life. You can have my awesomeness. You can have it reflected in you. You can have salvation. You can recover completely. You can give up that old, busted up old car that you have, and you can have this nice Corvette. No problem. You got to do nothing for it. You like it? Because you love me, you can have it. Christ came down from heaven, and that awesomeness of Him who created the universe came down from heaven and humbly gave Himself to us. And this is what the Father did of the prodigal son. That awesomeness of that Father, who is rich, who is able to throw a feast for Him, who is able to throw a party for Him, give Him a, a, a golden ring, and give Him a coat, and clothe him with his honor and glory and majesty, came running like a little child, giving up his dignity, falling on his neck for the son that ran away, for the son that lived the sinful life. This is who God is for us because he's awesome and he's willing to give you that awesomeness. When you see and recognize that God is awesome, you're going to have something called the wow factor. I have no better name for it. Wow. When we come to this beha, we say, yours is the power, the glory, the, the blessing and the majesty. What are you saying? You're saying, Lord Jesus, you're awesome. When you come to tasbiha or midnight praise, what are you doing? You're saying, wow. You're looking at the cross and looking at wow. That's what, when we pray, when we worship, when we come to the liturgy, our worship services are saying, wow. Give me some of that. I want you. I want to touch you. I want to have a part of you. I want you to be inside me and I want to be in you. I want you to live in me and I want to live because you're awesome. It's all the prayers and the liturgies of the church and the doxologies and the Vespers prayers and the chants and, and the Paschal doxologies. We're walking in Passion Week and basically saying, wow, in a way that the church has set for us. We're just saying, wow, because you're awesome. That's what our prayers are doing this week. That's what we're coming to God, thanking Him for, wow, where's that wow in you and me? If that wow is in you and me, then coming to church bending our will to God's will, sacrificing ourselves for God so that He can change us, so that our fallen nature can change the way He wants it to change, is not going to be a chore. It's going to be a, wow, give me some of that. You're awesome. I want your awesomeness. When you have that wow factor, God and the prayers and the services and the sacrifices we do to better ourselves for God's sake through His grace is no longer a chore, but it is an awesome privilege. When you have that wow factor, and you recognize that the Bible asks you to have the fear of God, have that wow, you're going to want to worship Him. You're going to want to return to Him. When He calls you with His wow, when you see His wow, His awesomeness, you're going to want to be like Him. Nothing's going to become a chore. You're going to want to talk to Him all the time. Prayer will not be, oh, i got to get up and pray again. i gotta, you got to use the Akbay again. No, it's going to be, wow, I want to talk to you. Right? For those of you that are getting married soon and God has granted you the blessing of a potential spouse or a fiancé, you're feeling the same way, hopefully, about your spouse, husband or wife, and you're saying, wow, she just called me. I can't believe it. She actually cares. I didn't think she was going to say yes to, to, to marrying me. I got on my knees and she's saying, wow, she, can you believe she just called me? It's not a chore for you. When you pray to God and you have that wow factor for God, it's the same thing. Wow, I can't wait to talk to him. He's talking to me in the Bible and the liturgies in the church. I want to talk to him too. Praying the Akbeya is not a chore. Coming to church is never a chore. You want to come running early when you have that fatwa factor. You're going to look for commandments to obey. 
How can I obey you today, Lord? I want that awesomeness. And you know what else? Not only when you recognize that God is awesome, but look how more awesome it gets. God wants to make you awesome too. Not only is He awesome, but He wants to make you awesome. Look at Moses. When Moses saw the Lord, he knew he was awesome. He knew it. And then he said to God, let me see your face. Let me see your glory. And God said, and he wanted to see his essence. Well, who is this God? We don't know what the substance or essence of God is. So he wanted to see his essence. He says, show me your glory. And God responded to him and said, no man can see my face and live. But I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you. And I'm going to pass by you. And you'll see my back parts. You'll see me as I pass by. But if you look directly at me, you will die. You can't see me. And then what happened? Do you remember the story? What happened when Moses came off the mountain? Pardon? And was it, well, his hair was white, I'm sure, because he was over 80 years old. But yes, his hair was white and glowing. What else was glowing about him? His face was so shiny, so awesome, that what did he have to do? He had to cover his face. People couldn't stare at him because he was glowing. He was shining. And for him to have to cover his face, it's not like, ooh, look at the nice tan I got. You know when you go to the beach and someone's glowing because he got a nice tan? Right? Oh, you're glowing. That wasn't what Moses. What, that wasn't what happened to Moses. He wasn't going. Nice. Are you using some? Are you using some new cream today? You know. You know what I mean? You weren't using new cream. No. He had to cover his face because it was so bright. You couldn't look at him. That's how bright he was. He had to veil his face. And the Bible tells us that Saint Paul says to us that we are moving from glory to glory. We ourselves are also being, are receiving, reflecting that glory of God. The closer we come to Him. God wants us to be awesome too. There was a great church father, St. Irenaeus, who lived in the early centuries after the apostles. St. Irenaeus had a wonderful saying. He said, the glory of God, guess what the glory of God is? His might, His majesty. You know what he said? He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man, you and me, and woman. The glory of God is man fully alive. Glorious. Awesome. So it, ref- it glorifies God when you reflect His glory, when you are awesome too. So this awesome God, not only is He awesome, but also wants you and me to be awesome. Now if that doesn't motivate us to return to God, I don't know what will. And this is the fear of God, is to recognize His awe, to recognize how awesome He is, and that He also wants you to be awesome. Finally, so the fear of God, to return to God, we have to be wise like the prodigal son. Wait, recognize I was lost. It's better in the church. It's better living with God. It's better that I give up my sin and repent. This is wisdom. Then grow and say, okay, if I continue in this life, yes, I'm going to inherit damnation instead of life. So this is wisdom. Now repent and grow in the love of God and grow in the filial fear of God. And then recognize that God is so awesome and want to be like Him. Have an active life in the church. Have an active spiritual life in your prayer. Have an active relationship with Jesus so that you can be fully united to Him by recognizing, recognizing His awesomeness. This is the awe or the fear of God that the church wants to move us to. And as we walk through Passion Week saying, Thok tetigom, thine is the power of the glory, you're recognizing their awesomeness. And that even though He's so magnificent and awesome, and if you look at the essence of God face to face, you will die, He still reveals Himself to you himself to you and shows himself to you and how much he loves you on the cross like the father who came running with his arms wide open the sinful son who was lost without asking him any questions without condemning him without saying anything at all to him 
Yes, what you did is wrong. You Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus opens his arms and says, just come. Yes, I'm awesome, but I'm humble. I've humbled myself so that you can see me without dying, so that you can receive me and so you can grow in the awesomeness that I am. And you can reflect my awesomeness and my majesty and my glory. Glory to God forever and ever. Amen. May we all recognize that all of us are in continual need of salvation. May we all recognize that even after baptism, there is a place for repentance. Even after baptism, when we fall, there's a place to return. And let the holy fear of God, the filial fear of God, and the awesomeness of God motivate us all to truly be found by Him in peace and to want to unite with Him in all peace. And may we inherit eternal life and see the glory of the holy resurrection, both this Sunday and in our actual uh, spiritual and physical resurrection. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.